Oh, we're about ready? I'll check. Why don't we start in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Could you all close the doors? So, uh, it's good to be with you all today, fellas. Uh, this is a human formation conference uh, that Father Philip used to give called Freedom and Fidelity. So, I was not told exactly what I should talk about. I wasn't given an outline or any basic points, so I had to do it myself. So, came up with the talk that I think is pretty good. Hopefully, y'all will benefit from it. Uh, and if there's time at the end, we'll have time for discussion or questions. So, uh, as seminarians and as priests, future priests, God willing, fidelity or faithfulness to church, to her teachings, to parishioners, to your promises is essential. And this type of fidelity, a, a lifelong fidelity, is not going to be easy. But it's even more challenging, I think, in the culture that we're in today uh, for two reasons. One is because it is a culture that does not understand or appreciate fidelity or long-term commitments or any type of commitment. But also one that sees freedom as complete autonomy. That anything that limits one's freedom is bad. And so I want to take time to, to look at sort of the cultural ramifications of what I just said in regards to freedom and fidelity, and then try to propose some solutions. A lot of my ideas came from a book I read last year that I loved. Uh, he's a Protestant. No, actually, he's Catholic. He's Catholic. His name is Pete Davis, and he wrote this book called Dedicated. It's not from an explicitly Catholic perspective, although he's Catholic, and uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, if you like what I have to say today, I'd encourage you uh, to pick up a copy of that book. So let's look at the first thing, fidelity. We're trying to put everything into context on how we're going to apply it in our own situation. Uh, our culture today, I'm sure you're well aware of it, struggles with commitments. Any type of commitments, being tied down. Fidelity to people, to vows, even to ideas and places. And so why is this? A lot of different reasons. But I want to go into what Davis calls this. He uses two different terms to describe our culture. And the main one is he calls it that we live in infinite browsing mode. Of course, it sort of implies the impact of social media, technology, the Internet. We're always scrolling. We're never settled on one page. We're always jumping from this link to that link. What's the next thing to see? What's the next thing to experience? And in a certain sense, yes, it influences the way we do things, but it also is a great way of describing it. He also describes our culture as a culture of open options. A lot of different things connected to it, but a big part of it is that we live in a culture of consumption an economy of consumption. There are abundance of op uh, options. Some of us in here uh, are old enough to remember, well, one, maybe two people are old enough to remember, when you went to the store and there was basically Crest and Colgate. I remember when Aquafresh came out. Whoa, it's the third type of toothpaste. 
Now there are five billion types of toothpaste. I have no idea what to choose. But these options, and it's good, we have all of these different options, and most of them can be ordered on Amazon and delivered in two days. This can be really overwhelming, or it can also lead us to an idea that we always should have our options open. open. Of course, there are other philosophical underpinnings with postmodernism, poststructuralism, but the best description of sort of this culture that we have uh, that, that is very difficult to commit, where our ideas are always shifting, is the term, if you haven't heard it yet, you're going to hear it in my introduction to morals class called liquid modernity. Liquid modernity. It's coined by, I think he's a Polish philosopher, sociologist named Zygmunt Bauman, Z-Y-G-M-U-N-T, Zygmunt Bauman, B-A-U-M-A-N. So this is his description of postmodernism, the world in which we live. And the book, he gives into the different reasons why he believes this, where it came from, but the term has sort of caught on. I'll read you a fairly long quote from him that describes what it is, and I think he does a good enough job of, of explaining it, where most of us should be able to say, yeah, this is the world we live in, and this is why it's hard to make commitments. He says, quote, forms of more modern life may differ in quite a few respects. But what unites them all is precisely their fragility, temporariness, vulnerability, and inclination to constant change. To be modern means to modernize compulsively, obsessively, not so much just to be, let it alone to keep its identity intact, but forever becoming, always avoiding completion, staying underdefined. Each new structure which replaces the previous one as soon as it is declared old-fashioned and past its due date is only another momentary settlement. They're, they're, he uses the term solid. There are not a lot of solid institutions. Acknowledge is temporary and, quote-unquote, until further notice. Being always at any stage and at all times post-something is also an undetachable feature of modernity. What was some time ago dubbed erroneously postmodernity, and what I've chosen to call more to the point liquid modernity is the growing conviction that change is the only permanence and uncertainty the only certainty. A hundred years ago to be modern meant to chase the final state of perfection. Now it means an infinity of improvement with no final state in sight and none desired, unquote. Now, Davis will explain more of what he means in his book, but the point is, if everything is shifting and changing, there's nothing that's permanent, not even our own identities or awareness of our own sexual embodiment, well, then why make a commitment? Why make a commitment to anything? It becomes very, very difficult. And so we live in this milieu. And so when it comes to making decisions, when it comes to fidelity, there's a challenge. First of all, seen this a lot in young people, it is the decision to hold off on making a decision. Something better might come along. Why am I going to commit to you? Because I might find someone who's more beautiful. So it won't commit. It's what we call the FOMO, the fear of missing out. If I commit to this, then guess what? I won't be able to have the fun that comes down the way. Or if 
we are committed to something, we feel this freedom to just back out at the last minute. Person's planned a party, they planned everything. I'm just going to back out without telling anybody because, eh, this is more fun that way. No fidelity. The other option is complete anxiety. There's too many options, too many choices, and we overthink and we just become paralyzed. An anxiety about worrying what is the right choice? Or what if I make the wrong decision? Will I be a disappointment? Terrible fear of failure. It's insecurity. It's fear-driven. And it leads to the struggle to make any kind of decision. But both of them end up in a lack of decision or this instant regret of a decision or a retraction of it. Both, of course, impact this idea of fidelity. It's impossible to be free. Does this make sense to y'all, what I'm describing? I think it's a fairly accurate description of the world that we live in and the church that exists in that world. The next thing, let's go to freedom. That's my commentary on fidelity of why it's hard to make commitments, make vows. What about freedom? You're going to hear a lot about this uh, in our Introduction to Morals class, and I'm sure many of you who've taken philosophy, at least here, have already heard it. The modern concept of freedom as autonomy, not anchored in the truth of the moral law, of the anthropology of our bodies, of our human nature. To be truly free means to be there are no limits. We must be free for radical choice. It's a radically individualistic vision of freedom, or as one philosopher calls it, this anthropology of disembodied wills. But ultimately, the body restricts our freedom. We can't have it. Our intellect, the perceiving the moral law, can't have it. We need to be able to choose what we want, when we want, how we want, with no restrictions. There are deep philosophical roots, and I'm sure most of you remember nominalism and William of Ockham and this desire to secure God's freedom, um, but which leads to what Pink Air is called, the freedom of indifference. Did y'all study this yet? not you're going to study it in a few uh in a few months as opposed to the traditional more catholic Thomistic version of the freedom for excellence you could sort of describe them as one freedom from restraint and the other is freedom for the good and that's the vision of freedom that we're adhering to but the fact is for most Americans, or for most in the Western culture, their idea is that freedom of indifference. I should be able to choose what I want, when I want, how I want. And any type of restriction, particularly a vow, an oath, a promise, or commitment, somehow limits my ability to choose. I'll give you three examples, and they're actually taken from what really inspired me, uh, besides Pete Davis's talk, to give this talk, was an article I read in this online quarterly called The Plow. Everybody read it. Um, it's not Catholic, but it, they sure quoted a lot of Catholic people. Uh, the article is called Word is Bond by someone named Peter Mommesen, M-O-M-M-E-S-E-N. And he kind of looks at this difficulty to commit to vows in our culture. And he says the three ways you can see it is in marriage, in the military, and in the monastic life. In all of these, we've seen a rise of cohabitation or divorce, struggle to commit in marriage. Military, a lot of people just not wanting to commit to the military, not wanting to make the sacrifice, not wanting to give their lives for that, and also a drop in the monastic life. 
on the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And I think the same thing applies to the priesthood. And I've seen that. Most of you know I worked in campus ministry from 2010 to 2021 in a college. I saw the back end of the millennials and the beginning of Generation X. And boy, oh boy, were things different. And particularly with guys, beginning, we used to get 10, 12 guys a year go to the seminary. It was hard to get one or two the past several years. I think it's a lot of a difficulty to commit. And granted, there are other options, other issues there at play. But the fact is, is whenever we choose these lives, one woman, a monastic community, a vocation, or a branch of the military, we have our freedom very limited. Particularly in the military, you have your freedom limited. And so within it, you know, I, I got to find a way out. I, I can't stay committed. I always have to have my exit door open. I got to be aware of where it is. And so this is something that affects all levels of society. So what is the solution? How do we, if we recognize this issue of the problem of proper understanding of freedom and also the reality of liquid modernity, how do we overcome it? Or at least how do we navigate it? I can't offer you a comprehensive one. It takes societal, generational change, philosophical change, that I'm going to bet, unless there's a miracle, doesn't happen in our lifetime. It just isn't. Probably it's actually going to become more liquidy, in my opinion. And I, we can encourage, and this is what we're trying to do, in educational systems and seminary to have a, a change of mind, the, the metanoia, the change of the way that we look th- at things. But one thing I've learned is I can change your mind. You can understand something, but it doesn't mean it's going to change your actions not going to change your heart. And that's where the change has to come. And again, this is going to sound so cheesy, but why not? Let's, let's sound cheesy for a bit. The real solution is that we learn how to love. To love. So when it comes to freedom and fidelity, love is the solution. Now, I'm not talking about love as one extreme of just pure emotionalism. I love, I fall in love. But I don't like the other extreme, and we're going to talk about this in moral theology too. Well, Thomas says love is a, a, a choice, a willing the good for the other. Well, that becomes sounds so stoic. I will the good for you, but I really hate you. But because I'm going by the definition of I'm willing the good for you, then I really love you. No, that's not the way it works at all. Love, genuine Christian love, has to spring from something deeper, from the heart akin to falling in love, but something that is more like or based in the willingness to give of oneself, to sacrifice oneself, to lay down one's life. This, of course, is going to be agape. It's that love that is poured into our hearts by the Spirit that should animate through baptism and the fanning in the flames, the gifts that were given, the life of the Christian. But the real key insight here, and again, it's one, as I keep saying, we're going to develop later on, so I'm giving you a little taste of what moral theology would be like, it is a phrase that always has really impacted me, or probably the best definition or description of authentic love that I've ever seen. And it comes from the Swiss theologian, Hans Erzman Balthasar, who before he died 
was named a cardinal, and Ratzinger preached his funeral. Remember this, straightjacket Thomas. Sorry, people who live in the 13th century. We'll get into that later on. <laughs> Look at that, we're making you all laugh. We know how it is. Don't worry about it. Well, we're going to get to that later in this talk. Love takes the form of an inner vow. Love takes the form of inner vow. The, the, the lover, the one who loves a person, an institution, a thing, is willing to be bound to the beloved. Doesn't need to be told, oh, I need to be faithful. This is the law that's imposed from the outside. Not at all. The one who loves does not need to be commanded to love or to act against love. They may still do so, but, oh, I love this person, but i got to follow the rules and not want to stab them in the, in the neck. No, you don't do that to people who you love. In love, there is no exterior obedience to that command. If one truly loves, then the obedience becomes interior, a self-imposed obligation springing from love. Because I love you, I want to be committed to you. I want to do what is good for you. It's a joy to do so. Balthazar says, obligation then is a word that pure love does not know. Or rather, its obligation is always a choice. It experiences the necessity it is under of loving the beloved as the highest and most perfect freedom. To love you and to be committed to you is the perfect expression of my freedom. A freedom not to be exchanged for all the goods of the world. What appears as cold duty to one who does not love is for love a joy. Because love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. For the lover to carry the burden of the beloved is a joy. And so, how do, how do we resolve this? Because if we remove it, then love becomes this duty, this obligation that's posed from without. Balthazar again, the more we remove ourselves from the innermost core of love, the more the commandment to love acquires for us a negative character and becomes a prohibition. In this way, the sweet inevitability of the lover's free choice to love is transformed into a harsh compulsion of an obligation. I have to love you. I have to be kind to you. But if we truly love another person, you don't have to ask those questions. And that's why St. Augustine's phrase, love and do what you will, is true. He's not, just, he's not a hippie. He's not just saying, oh, love everybody. No. If we truly love that we're not going to want to harm another. We're not going to want to abandon another. We'll only want to choose what is good for the other person. Does it make sense? We'll explore this more later. An essay that he has on this. But the true way for our fidelity to Christ, then, to the church, to our neighbor, to the moral law, to your vocation, and for the way to bear fruit is that you must live from the innermost core of love. Love of God, love of the church, love of neighbor. But, and here's the key, you can in a certain sense will to love, but to live from that innermost core, and it's always a challenge, you can't give what you don't have. 
to really experience, to give love, we have to experience being loved in a radical way. Particularly the love of the Father. We've got to live in his gaze and to understand, this is my beloved Son in whom I delight. Sonship, belovedness, that he delights in us. If we have not experienced that, and we think that somehow we're unlovable, we're not capable of being loved, we live in our brokenness and our shame, then guess what? We're not going to be able to love others. Balthazar has this wonderful quote, Many wait only for someone to love them in order to become who they always could have been from the beginning. The more that we live in love and know, whether it be direct through prayer or the sacraments or through our parents or mediated through friends and family, the more that we experience and know that we're beloved, the easier it will be for us to love. And so, loving of God and loving of neighbor. Not only easier, but joyful to commit, to limit our freedom. I want to be with you. I want to walk with you. I'm willing to give up all these other things I could do to spend time with the beloved, even in that difficult case. Much more joyful than going to to Disney World, or the circus, or whatever. you got to experience it. And once so, it's the experience of the true freedom that is an obligation that takes the form of an inner vow. Make sense so far? A little philosophical. But what does this look like? Let's be practical. This, it takes that interior change and transformation that really has to come through prayer, and through opening ourselves in a certain vulnerability. But it's got to start with the person and then locally. The change of heart, being loved in order to love the other. And then who we're going to love? Our neighbors, those around us. Great, we love everybody, but it's going to be actualized in the people around us. Our family, our friends, our community. So where are you going to learn if you haven't learned already? It should be in this small community or seminary, and then it brings it out to your parish. You're learning here how to live in community, how to love, and how to bind yourself to people, to the church, to those you're called to serve. So I'm going to give five things that, that I think are the ways that we can begin to actualize it. So in a certain sense, fidelity... Freedom and love are all tied into this. All tied into this. A lot of it comes from the Pete Davis article. Some of it ah, is my own formulation. The first one is this. And goodness gracious, this is important. I'm going to call it ownership. Not passing the buck or waiting for someone else to do it. I'm going to let them be loved by somebody else. I'm going to let them change this situation. It's a way of, of, of evading obligation, fidelity. You have to be the catalyst for change and progress, transformation in the church, in the world, whatever it is, in this community, and it needs to be driven by love. And so here in the seminary, you're here to be trained in freedom and fidelity. This is part of human formation so that you can enact it later. But if you 
or just sitting back passively waiting for me to do it for you or your formation advisor to do it for you or somehow force you to do it, to learn to love, to learn to be faithful, then, then it's not going to work. You know, grown, stinking men, not here to hold your hand. Maybe when you were 18 years old, I could have held your hand, but you're old. Take you have agency. Be committed. Want to do it. But the problem is the people who can't do it are the ones who don't know who they are. And if, you're, if you know the Lord loves you, if you're secure in your identity, and you know he's got you and you trust in him, if you're living as a beloved son or daughter, it's not always easy, but you have the confidence to step out of the boat, to make your own decision, to take ownership of your formation in your life. So if we're just passively waiting for this to happen, I'm not going to work. Ownership, maturity, identity. Number two, and, and I'm going to explain number two by offering a negative formulation first of what I believe it is not, and that is nostalgia. This is, let's, are we living liquid modernity? It's so hard to commit. There's chaos everywhere. Let's go back to a time when things were solid. Let's go back for us before Vatican II. Some of us, let's go back to the Middle Ages. Everything was solid then. Was it really? If it was so solid in 1955, why did it all come crashing to the ground in three years after Vatican II? It looked solid, but there were some termites under the structure. So this idea to go back is a way, ultimately, of escaping duties in the present. Pete Davis explains it well. We're still nostalgias often used to cover up a lack of living commitment to the present. This is why failing politicians try to evoke nostalgia for supposed golden ages. It's a great distraction from the less than golden present. An excessive nostalgia, it seems, goes hand in hand with present rustiness. And in turn, those who still participate in living communities today tend to indulge in nostalgia less. You know what? This is the community we're living in. It's not perfect. Things can be pretty crappy, but you've got to live here. Going back to some supposed time and creating some anachronistic reality is not going to solve the problem. So put it positively, fidelity to the present moment. I mean, you know, imagine the people in, in war in Poland in World War II. Wonderful for us to live in the fantasy land that this never happened, but it did. And so we have to face the reality of what's there. Number three, I'm just going to call this being embedded in a community. Being embedded, rooted see that. We know this. We're, we're, we're not monads. We are created for communion. We depend on others and others depend on us. From the moment of being born into the world, you're existing in relation to your mother and your father. And so as a result, we've got to, we are part of the community we have to be actively involved in, embedded in the community, not living on the peripheries. Very easy. I'm here at the seminary. I'm always going to be hanging out in the peripheries. I'm not going to really super get involved in my community, in my formation, in anything. Why? Because it's a way to escape commitment. 
we're embedded in the community, and we love and we receive love as a place where we are seen and known and loved, we feel at home. We want to be part of it. We feel safe. We feel cherished. And ultimately, particularly as priests, we learn to be home for other people. But it's not easy. Because we've got to deal with other people's crap, and other people have to deal with our crap. Not an easy thing at all. But we learn to love there. We learn to give of ourselves, and often on a daily basis. There's a religious community that I greatly respect, who I think, for women's religious community, wonderfully balanced. So I asked one of the older sisters who I knew, how do you achieve this? And she mentioned a book that we actually have in our, our library called uh, Caring, dumb name for it, but by Father Thomas Dubay. And, and I read the book, and I said, you know what this sounds like? It sounds like something that came from another religious community that I think is pretty solid. And I asked them, how do you gain the solid community? And she suggested something I never heard of. You could find it online. The 12 Little Virtues of Marceline Champagnat. He's the founder of the Marists. And then I realized, wait a second, Father Dubay was a Marist. So they're connected. Go look up these little virtues, and if we try to live these out in community, embedded in community, in very little ways, things begin to change. It's where we learn to love. Number fourth, I'm going to call it depth. If we're embedded in a community, our roots run deep. It's not shallow. It's not easy just to pick up and move. The lack of commitment means ah, the shallow relationships, shallow involvement of the community. We will remain in that liquid state. We can always move. We're nomadic. We can jet, jet we need. We're never totally invested. And the person who loves, though, will never do this. We truly love, if we're committed, I'm going to not just shoot for the minimum. I'm going to give of myself fully, which means is I'm here till the end. I'm rooted in this parish, in this place, in this diocese. Granted, we live in a very mobile society, and that's actually sort of what Bauman says leads to liquid modernity. But the priest who's never in his parish, who doesn't spend time, who's not available. No, you've got to be rooted there. And I also think that it takes years to get rooted. But they keep moving after four or five years, crazy. No, be there for a long period of time so that you can get to know people, and people get to know you. It's a slow process. It takes years, decades, so that if you are uprooted, it's going to hurt. And sometimes you're a parish priest, you're going to be uprooted. We all are. But the fact is that you will have hopefully left acorns that will later bear some fruit. Even a quote that you all probably think is cheesy, but it's actually from... The lady who was just named Poet Laureate for the U.S., she's Hispanic, Ada Lamon, A-D-A-L-I-M-O-N. She's not a Christian, not a Catholic, but she writes some beautiful stuff. So I'm kind of using this because someone showed me this quote the other day, and I just loved it. I want to incorporate it. She says, so she's talking about trees. This is from her work called Shelter. So to talk about trees is to talk about our attachment to them our longing for them to be okay. Talk about trees then is to talk about each other. 
the ways we are attached to what is living and how much we want it to go on doing just that for as long as possible. There's never only trees, but what binds us together. The trees, the roots, the eternal part of us that is both the seed and the tree. She's a poet, so she's using that type of language, but it is. Trees are rooted. We're connected. We love trees. And so it shows that we're all, all the root systems of the different trees in a forest are all interwoven and interconnected. It takes a long time, but we've got to be invested in the community deeply. And then finally, it's the term that Davis uses most often his book called Long Haul Heroism. Not only deep here, sort of vertically, but horizontally. We're in it for the long haul. We're not here. Look how dedicated I am. I'm going to come in. He calls it Dragon Slam. I'm going to slay the dragon. Follow me. I'm great. Nope. This does not inspire. It takes time and effort, a commitment to accompaniment, to walking, not giving up on you. I'm here. We're, we're, we're journeying somewhere. We're not just wandering around. We're going somewhere. And that commitment is to love on a daily basis in the little things, the joys, the struggles, the failures. It's the little way of St. Therese. Every day, even when I fail, I am committed to loving and being there present. Not expecting to see results, but still committed to the process. Living out the obedience of love, that inner vow on a daily basis in small ways. One of the reasons I gave that quote from Ada Lamone was because Davis' chapter, he has this one great chapter, he talks about it, the forest and the flood. The forest is the work it takes for us to individually plant seeds that grow into trees. Go and plant here, plant here, plant here. And the forest takes a long time to grow. But it's opposed to the flood of liquid modernity that comes and wants to wash away everything. So after the flood, or even during the flood, which we live in, we still need to be out there doing the little things, planting the little seed that will later grow into something significant. So in conclusion, these things and how they're going to be lived out perfectly, hey, you know, it's up to you. They're in a parish. You're going to have to make those little decisions every day. It would be wonderful if you just preached your first homily and then everyone lines up for confession. Ain't going to happen. No. You're going to fail a lot. You're going to feel like a fool, but you don't give up. And so Davis's argument is that he wants to form a counterculture of commitment. Counterculture of commitment. We're committed to our promises, to our vows, to our family, to our community. To, our, to whatever, our church. And I would say that, that commitment has got to be one rooted in genuine love. So John Paul II used to say we need to build the civilization of love. The civilization of love is the civilization of commitment. And if we do it, it's not always easy. It's a struggle. As a priest, you're going to have those days when you're having all these little victories and failures, but God willing, the fruit of that tree the fruit of that commitment is going to be joy. Sort of an earthly share in beatitude. The joy of the good news. The joy of serving and loving others. 
Not stoicism, but a genuine joy. It's not always going to be there. It's going to be manifested in different ways. But you can tell the guy who's always the cynic and the critic is not joyful. That's not helping anybody. It's the one who is joyful. It's the child. Ratzinger has a great quote on this. The deepest poverty is not material poverty, but spiritual poverty. The inability to be joyful. The conviction that life is absurd and contradictory. I think you could probably apply liquid modernity to that. In different forms, this poverty is widespread today, both in the material, materially rich and the impoverished nations. The inability to grasp joy comes from and leads to the inability to love. There's a connection. It's sort of a negative feedback loop. If you can't love, you can't be joyful. You've read, uh, what is his face? Joseph Pieper's book, Only the Lover Sings. We're loving. We love the Lord. The Lord loves us. We love our neighbor. There's going to be a joy that comes from it. So those two are connected. In my experience, the freest people are the ones who are the most committed, and they are the ones that are most joyful. I can tell you plenty of couples married 25, 35, 40, 50 years, going through a lot of trials, but they're joyful at being each other's presence. They still love them, each other. They love their children. But, oh boy, that bond is strong. A religious sister, usually religious sisters are the most joyful people that I meet. And they're the most committed, much more than Dawson priests. We can do what we want. But I have met some really joyful... Pr- uh, how many of you are, remember, you would know, I would imagine, from New Orleans, remember Monsignor Robert Gust? Oh, man. Father Harold Cohen. Those dudes were unbelievable. Well, I'm dead now for 10, 15, 20 years, but there's some joyful priests. And particularly Monsignor Gust uh, made me want to be a priest and... and, and his, his inspiration. So, so joyful. In the end, the main fruit is going to be joy, and that's how we can just do it. Because what Paul says, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice always. Say again, rejoice, even in the trials, in the struggles. That's the way that we're able to get through in our own love and, and be faithful and to perfectly or best way exercise our freedom.